So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 to 26. The Apostle Paul, under the guidance and direction and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, If in this life, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. But now, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Just a few comments here. If we've only hoped in Christ in this life and there's no hope for the life to come in his name, then, then our lives are vain. And we, we, we ought to be pitied for having sacrificed everything to serve the Lord and King Jesus. Yeah, amen. Amen. Another thought. In Adam all die, but for everyone who is in Christ, they will all be made alive. As, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we will be swallowed up in life. We will know the glory of life and the presence of God in a way we've never been able to imagine before. But Christ is the first fruits of that resurrection that you and I will experience. And as it says in verse 25, having been resurrected, and as we know, ascended into heaven, he is currently reigning until every single one of his enemies is put under his feet. And on the day of his return, he will put that last enemy under his feet, that enemy of death. And we will rise in the resurrection of the dead to glory. Praise God for such a good hope we have in Christ's name. Why don't we pray together as we begin the service. Our Father, we've gathered together on this Sunday evening in order to worship you as one people. All we have tonight is simple, broken, and imperfect worship to offer. But we pray that in the name of Christ, our worship would be sanctified and made acceptable to you. Lord, we ask that you would bless us now for the sake of your beloved Son, that Christ would be lifted high in our hearts and magnified from our lips. And we pray, Father, and we approach you in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior, your Christ, our Lord. Amen. Lord God, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we worship you this evening on this Lord's Day, June 18th, 2023. I thank you for the gathered saints here this evening, Lord. And I pray, Father, that you would indeed help me to preach this word. I pray that your name would be lifted high, for you are worthy of it all, Lord. All praise and glory and honor and blessing and riches be unto the Lamb. And we praise you this evening, Lord. I pray that your people here would be edified and that people who do not know you, sinners here, would be converted unto you, Lord. I pray for your grace. I can do nothing apart from you, Lord, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I pray that you'd bless this preaching. I pray that you'd bless this service, and that you would come and draw near to us, Lord. We seek your face, Lord. We draw near to you. Please draw near to us, Lord. Please pour out your Spirit upon this small flock here this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the title of this message is Eschatology First. So when you hear the word eschatology, what comes to your mind? Does confusion, debate, 
argument, chaos, anger, frustration? Or maybe you're asking yourself, what does eschatology even mean? Well, eschatology, simply put, is the Bible's doctrine, or the Bible's teaching of the last things. Teaching on death, judgment, the resurrection, heaven and hell, and the second coming of Christ. We get the word eschatology from the Greek word eschatos, which just simply means the end or the final. So that's why we call it eschatology, to study the last things, the final things. Personally, I have felt compelled of late to preach and teach on this topic here at Oak Ridge, and by God's providence, a door has been opened to me to do so in the evening services that we've started today. This excites me as I love the topic of eschatology. I love talking about it. I love uh, talking long hours with people. You can ask my wife that. I, I earnestly love this topic. And it's, I love it because it's about my Lord Jesus Christ and his coming. And I think all of us should be excited to speak about this. Uh, but I know that sometimes there's a lot of confusion, a lot of different views on eschatology. So I want to begin by saying that I know there's differing views in this congregation. And I don't want to cause anyone to feel bad. I don't want to cause any problems. And I'm not trying to hurt anyone's feelings here. But I believe that what I'm going to be preaching on in the next four Lord's Day evenings is the heart of what the scriptures lay out when it comes to eschatology. For those of you who are familiar with this topic of eschatology, you will know that the goal that I just laid out is a very large task. And perhaps I have bitten off more than I can chew, but I'm going to try and I have to try because it's worth it. And by God's grace, we're going to learn more about eschatology. And right now, the Church of Jesus Christ in America is thinking and speaking a lot about eschatology. It's in the forefront of many minds. So we need to have discernment. We need to know what is right. We have to cut a straight course. Therefore, we're going to start a series on eschatology in the book of Genesis tonight. The second sermon will be in Matthew. The third will be in Titus. And the fourth will be in the book of Revelation itself. So we're going to begin in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 this evening. Now, some of you may ask before we start reading in Genesis, why would you preach from Genesis in a series on eschatology, the last things? It seems backwards. Why would you start in the first book of the Bible if you're preaching on the last things? Well, Genesis, I would argue, and I hope to convince you this evening by God's help, is the best place to learn about eschatology. It is packed with many different doctrines, which we're not going to be getting into tonight. We're going to concentrate on the things that are teaching about the last things. And those are the things I will study and concentrate the study on this evening. So we're going to look at four main points this evening, four heads that we see in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that have to do with eschatology and have to do with the doctrine of the last things. And these four headings are these. Number one, the image of God. Number two, the garden temple or God's dwelling among us. Number three, God's promise of eternal life. And number four, the fall and the promised gospel. So number one, let us begin looking at the image of God in Genesis 1, verse 26 through 28. And it reads thus, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then we quickly will jump ahead to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where it describes God's creation of man, the apex of his creation. Genesis 2, verse 7, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So out of these first few verses that we've read here, we're going to look at three things. The first is this. We will note that Adam is created a physical and spiritual being. 
His body was produced by the dust of the ground, and then God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. He gives him the spirit. So we can understand from the beginning here that mankind, you and I, men and women, are both physical beings and spiritual beings. We're embodied souls. And that's important, as we'll look at later on. Number two, we will note that Adam was recreated in true righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. Now, that's implicit in these texts, but what is explicit later on in the New Testament is what I just stated, that true righteousness, holiness, and knowledge is a part of the image of God. So in later divine revelation, the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 4.24, speaking of those who have been made in the image of Christ, who have been born again and are now imaging Christ, he says that you would put on the new man, which was your created according to God and true righteousness and holiness. So there's the righteousness and holiness. Now, where does the knowledge come from? Well, Paul supplies that in Colossians 3.10. And you have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So there's the image language. And many in the Reformed tradition have looked at these verses and have concluded that, yes, Adam himself was also created in that true righteousness, holiness, and knowledge at the moment of his creation. It wasn't given to him later on. It wasn't added as something that he needed. When God created man, he was holy, righteous, and he had knowledge of God and knowledge of himself. He didn't need something extra. God made him capable of obeying him and being pleasing to him as a physical, spiritual being. And then number three, we will look at the two aspects of the image of God. So man is the image of God. What does that mean? Well, we can look at it in a broad sense and a narrow sense. So in a broad sense, man is the image of God because we have rational capacities. We have the ability to communicate. We have the ability to make decisions. We can take dominion. We can rule. That's the broad sense of the image of God. We have this ability to do things like God. We can rule. We can think. We can communicate. But in a narrower sense... The image of God is played out in man's original righteousness, holiness, and true knowledge. So mankind was originally created very good and was given abilities that would allow him to be and act as God's representative on the earth. And this is very important. God makes man in a certain way so that not only he can function, he can do things in a way that God would do them. We are to be God's representatives on the earth. We are to be God's mirrors. We're going to reflect who he is. And the way we do that is we have to actually have the ability to go forth, take dominion, and do it in a way that also pleases God. Not just simply doing it, but it's a way that's done in righteousness and holiness. So this is the broad sense of the image of God, that we have these abilities to do it. And then the narrow sense, we do it in a way that's pleasing to God. We do it in a way that is like God. Another way, if you're still trying to work through this, to think about this, the image of God is birth a noun and a verb. We are the image of God, and we image God. We are the image of God by our creation. We have the abilities, like I talked about broadly, but then more specifically, then we image him. We do it. We do it in a way that honors him and reflects his character and nature. So this is a brief understanding, a brief comprehension about the image of God. There's a lot more that could be said, but this is important for eschatology in this short way. and It'll wrap up in the end a lot more nicely, but this is what we have to consider right now. God makes man in his image for a purpose. He doesn't just give us these abilities and this narrow sense to do it in a way that pleases him, just so that we'd endlessly do it for no reason. There's an end goal for why God makes man as his representative on the earth. There is an end to that. There's a, there's a goal, there's a design to it. And that's what we're going to look at, Lord willing, as we continue to go on through these series, this series here. So ultimately, for the sake that man might worship God, he's made it in the image of God. So that he might communicate with God, he might fellowship with God, he might serve God. And that leads us to our next heading. Number two, the garden temple of God's special dwelling amongst his people. So God has created man in his image. He's created image bearers. And now he's going to create a special place where he will dwell and commune with his people. Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Verse 10. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it parted and became four riverheads. 
The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havalah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedulium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth is the river Euphrates. So we see very briefly here, God plants a garden specifically in his, new, in his creation. This is very distinct. So God creates the heavens and the earth in six days and rests on the seventh. He creates all the cosmos and then does something very specific here. He then plants a garden. And a river flows out of this garden, which creates two, four other major rivers. There's gold there. There's precious stones there, which is important because we see later on in the book of Leviticus that the temple or the tabernacle is supposed to be filled with gold, especially the Holy of Holies. So the gold is an image of who God is. It's his purity. It's his worth. And so this is interesting that Moses is putting these hints here in Genesis to show the Garden of Eden was special. There was precious stones there. There was valuable things going on there. And again, as we've already done, we're going to look later into the scriptures to receive commentary on what's happening in Genesis. In Ezekiel 28, we see the prophet Ezekiel talking about the fall of Satan. And that's very controversial. We're not going to deal with that specifically here, but he has details about the Garden of Eden in Ezekiel that are very important. So listen carefully. Ezekiel 28. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes were prepared for you in the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. So Ezekiel here is talking about the Garden of Eden being a mountain. And as we're going to see hopefully here, This wasn't just any mountain. It was God's special place of dwelling with his people. And we see that later on in the books of Moses, we see that in the Old Testament, that God says, go to the mountain and build this temple in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. God meets with his people on mountains. He meets with his people on Mount Sinai and gives the law. Eden itself was also a mountain. Eden itself was a garden mountain temple of God where God dwelt with his people. A river flowed down from the mountain, creating these four Riverheads, and that's important for six reasons here that Brother Daniel Ragusa and G.K. Beale note in their study of the Old Testament. They say, one, why is, the, why is Eden a garden temple of God? Why would we say that? So I've given you some points, but consider six more. One, just as the temple was the place of God's unique presence experienced by the priests, so Eden was the place where God walked with Adam. G.K. Beale notes, the same Hebrew verbal form used for God's walking back and forth in the garden in Genesis 3.8 also describes God's presence in the tabernacle in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 2 Samuel, and Ezekiel. God is walking amongst his people there. Number two, Adam is depicted as a priest with respect to his task, namely to work and to keep the garden, which is the priest's task in the temple. The same Hebrew verbs are used there in Numbers, First Chronicles and Ezekiel. Essentially, Adam was guarding the temple from unclean things. He used to guard the garden from unclean things. That's the Levite's task. That's the priest's task. Guard God's special dwelling place from the unclean. Number three, Israel's tabernacle and temple had wood carvings that gave it a garden-like ambiance. So if you think back to the temple that Solomon built, what does he do? He arrays the whole temple basically in gold, and then he has carvings of cherubim, of pomegranates, of palm trees. What he's doing is he's hearkening back to the Garden of Eden. He's trying to show the worshipers at the temple, look, this is like the Garden Temple. He's got all of this garden imagery in the temple that he puts there, and that's for a reason. Number four, just as the entrance to Israel's latter temple was to face east and be on a mountain, And just as the end-time temple of Ezekiel was to face east and be on a mountain, so the entrance of Eden faced east and was situated on a mountain. Again, temple language. 
Last two here. Number five. As a river flowed out from Eden, so a river flows from the eschatological temple in uh, Ezekiel and Revelation. The pure river of life flowing from the Lamb and from God in Revelation. Clear as crystal and giving life to all that drink of it. This imagery of living waters flowing from God's presence is all over the scriptures. And we see it in the book of Revelation And we see it here in Genesis. A river flows out of Eden. God's presence was there. That's why. And finally, number six. I've mentioned this briefly before. Just as gold and onyx are in the garden, so they are used to decorate the latter sanctuaries and priestly garments. So we're seeing all these elements are here. God creates man in his image. He has the capacity to serve God and to serve God in a way that pleases him. And then he puts man in this garden temple that's on a mountain to dwell with him, to serve him, and to enjoy him. So we have these elements being set up here in Genesis. God's dwelling forever with his people. God's people being made in a certain way that can please him and serve him. But ultimately, those two things are incomplete in themselves. The last and third point here is this. God then promises his people eternal life, otherwise known as the covenant of works. So we're going to look at this under three sub-points here. What is God's promise of eternal life to his people in the garden temple of Eden to his image bearers? Why would we say he's promising them eternal life? Well, number one, we see there's a command of work and then a promise of rest. So in Genesis 1.28, we read this again. Then God blessed them, that is Adam and Eve, Adam and his helpmate. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God is commissioning Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with other image bearers, and have dominion over it. Spread through the whole cosmos, spread through the whole world, spreading the image of God, and have dominion. And what was the end goal of that? We see that in Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So this is very important here. Again, God makes man in his image. He creates the heavens and the earth and all that is in them in six days, and then he rests on the seventh. And then, as man created in his image is to do, they're going to be like God. So what are they going to do? They're going to work six days, rest one day. Start over. Work six days, rest one day. These weekly cycles of rest, or working six days and then resting one, they were to imitate God in doing what he did. Do creative work. Create image bearers of God. Go out through all the world and subdue it. And as you do that through these weekly cycles, the Sabbath reminder is that when you get to the end of your task, when you've completed what I've commanded you to do, there is eternal rest for you. Just as God rested from all his works, he does not do creative works like that anymore. He rested on the seventh day finally. So as image bearers who are made in his image, who need to act like God, God gives us an example. Watch me. Do what I do. I work six days, I rest. You work six days, you rest. Here's the commission. Go, fill the earth, subdue it, take dominion over all the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and the animals that creep on the earth. And then when you're done, eternal rest. Do as I do. That's the point of the Sabbath. So number one, we see the command of work and then promised rest. That's what we believe would be eternal life promised there. And then number two, there's also the presence of the two trees. We read, Then the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it gets more developed. Not only does God say, go and subdue the earth, my image bearers, and fill the earth with other image bearers, and expand this garden temple to the ends of the earth so that I might fill all the earth with my presence and with my people. Two trees in the midst of this garden. Tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A test, blessing, and curse. There is probation here. God is testing mankind. He's not saying, you just have eternal life. 
enjoy it with me. He's saying, I'm commanding you to do this, and I'm putting a test before you. Tree of life, which stands for, I believe, eternal life. If they ate of that tree, if they completed their works, if they did what God commanded, Adam eats the tree of life, confers it to all his posterity, and eternal life is granted. Or the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is sin, rebellion, signified death. The presence of the two trees is why we also believe that there is a promise of eternal life there laid before mankind. Then finally, number three, the command that God gives to guard and the warning and threat of disobedience and death. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And that word keep there is not meaning like he's keeping a garden in the sense he's trimming hedges. That, 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 that word keep in Hebrew is shamar. It means to guard. And there's a reason we'll see why he has to guard this garden. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. A threat. Not as all is right, not right in Eden yet. Mankind must do what God is commanding in the right way and not eat of this tree. Because there's a threat of death, a threat of separation from God. So what we are seeing here, this promise of eternal life for the first man and woman, God's image bearers in his garden, is what has commonly been referred to in history as the covenant of works. So you might ask yourself, okay, so what does that mean? What is the covenant of works? Essentially, a covenant in the scriptures, as we see, is it's an oath-bound promise by God on behalf of man. So what he's doing is he's condescending on our behalf. He's saying, listen, I'm going to offer you something you wouldn't normally have unless I condescended and offered it to you. But I'm going to promise you eternal life if you do this. We see that in the scriptures with Abraham. He promises him that his seed is going to bless all the nations. He promises Abraham, I'm going to multiply you as the stars of heaven. And we all understand that that was the Abrahamic covenant, that that language is used there. We've got no problem. But many people might say, now wait a minute. The word covenant is not used in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So how can you say that this is a covenant of works? Well, the way I would answer that is this. That is the word concept fallacy. Essentially, if a word is not used, the objector would be saying the concept can't be there. But as Christians, evangelical Christians, we cannot fall into that fallacy for two reasons. One, if we believe that the word of God is truthful, it's inerrant, it doesn't have any errors in it, the word inerrancy is never used in scripture. Yet we know the concept of God's word not deceiving us and being truthful is. So we use the word inerrancy to describe that. The same with the Trinity. The word Trinity is not used in the scriptures, but the concept of God being one, being three in persons is. So just because a word is not used explicitly in a text does not mean the concept is not there. And that, I believe, is what we'll see here, that this is a covenant that's being made by God with Adam. So three sub-points to understand why is this a covenant. So sub-point A. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that God... The word God is referred to and switched to the Lord God. Now, this is very interesting. In Genesis 1, Moses is writing here. He's describing the word. He's saying God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew word is Elohim. It's a generic word for God. But then something very interesting happens in Genesis chapter 2. Moses specifically changes the description to God to Lord God when he describes what he's doing with Adam in the garden. There's this change of name here. And the reason is very specific. It's this. Lord God, or Adonai Elohim, is the covenant name that, that is used by God, by the Israelites. So when God is making a covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai, they call him Lord God, Adonai Elohim. And what Moses is doing here in Genesis 2, he's saying, when God starts dealing with Adam in the garden, he calls him Lord God. Covenant name of God is being used here. Now why would he all of a sudden switch to the covenant name of God if no covenant activity is happening? Moses knew what he was doing. That's the first point, sub-point A. Sub-point B, the prophet Hosea in chapter 6, verse 7, he says this, describing what Adam did. He said, but like Adam, the Israelites have transgressed the covenant. They have dealt treacherously against me. 
So Hosea, a divine, uh, this inspired prophet, is looking back and he's looking at the Israelites who are sinning and breaking God's covenant and saying, you're being just like Adam. He broke the covenant. You're breaking the covenant. But if there is no covenant in the garden, then why is the prophet Hosea saying, you've broken a covenant, Israel, just like Adam did? Because there was a covenant there. And finally, subpoint C. Romans 5.14. Paul comments, comments on this as well. Nevertheless, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So Paul is saying that Adam functioned as a type. That means Adam functioned, functioned as a shadowy figure of what is to come, that is Christ Jesus. So just as Jesus Christ acts as a head and he represents his people in the covenant of grace, he represents his people. He lives for them. He dies for them. He intercedes for them. Just as Christ did that, so Adam did. Paul is saying that Adam was also a representative head, just like Christ was. He's using that specifically to show that all those who are in Adam will die, but all those who are in Christ shall live. So if we're thinking about the covenant of works in the garden, Adam was representing people. He was a representative head. He was a type for Christ who is to come, who would represent his people and bring them to salvation. And so these three subpoints, I believe, show that there is covenant activity happening in the Garden of Eden. The tree of life, again, in the midst of the garden, symbolizes the promise of eternal life, which is ultimately being confirmed in righteousness and glory with God forever. That's eternal life. To be in glory with God forever, not able to sin, not able to die, in perfect fellowship with Him. That is eternal life, being with God forever in glory. And then God resting on the Sabbath symbolized eternal rest that Adam and his offspring would enter into after the work was done. If Adam, the representative head of humanity, had obeyed the test, he and the whole human race would have received eternal life and be confirmed in righteousness and would have entered into eternal rest. And as Dr. Lane Tipton has commented, the communion bond with God would reach its highest permanent form of consummation and perfection. The righteousness and holiness that were changeable through Adam's probation would be confirmed irrevocably and perfectly in consummation. And Adam would gain full and free and permanent access to God in a bond of communion that knows no end. That is the end goal of the image of God. It's all here in Genesis 1 through 3. The image of God and the reason why we were created that way. We see the garden temple and the reason that God wants to dwell with us forever and have his dwelling to be filled all throughout the cosmos and that God wants to give us eternal life, that we might enjoy him and have a bond of fellowship with him that knows no end and perfection and glory forever. That just sounds like revelation. That just sounds like the new heavens and the new earth. That sounds like glory. That sounds like eternal life. But that's all here in Genesis 1 through 3, promised to Adam. This is why... The famous biblical theologian Gerhardus Voss said the eschatological is, old, is an older strain in Revelation than the Soteric. So what does that mean? In other words, he's saying this. The Bible teaches about the last things before it teaches about salvation. So the Bible was very, the scriptures were very concerned to talk about what was happening in the garden. And then only later is salvation brought in. In Genesis 3, after the fall, which we're about to look at. So in the beginning, there was a plan to bring creation, to bring the cosmos, to bring the image of God to a final consummation, and there was no need for salvation. So these things that we study about when we think about eschatology and the last things, they're here in Genesis right here. And you need to understand this. If you do not understand the foundation, you're not going to be able to continue to build. You can't start with a roof. You have to have the foundation. And so many people, when we talk about eschatology, we talk about the end times, the last things, go to the roof first. They don't start at the foundation. They don't consider Genesis. They don't see the themes here in Genesis which we're talking about. So if you want to study eschatology, if you want to know what is going on, if you do not understand Genesis, you're going to go astray. If you don't understand the blueprint God has laid out and the point for which he created all things, you're going to go astray somewhere. If you don't get the garden right, in other words, if you don't understand these first few chapters of Genesis, you will go wrong in your understanding of eschatology and, and other places as well. This is the foundation. But all was not right in Eden, like I said. The work still had to be done to attain that higher life. 
And there is a reason God commands Adam to guard the garden. Because before that higher life could be reached, that eternal life could be reached, mankind is still under the threat of potential death for disobedience. And that old serpent, the devil, is still prowling around threatening God's holy place and people. That leads us to heading for the fall and the gospel promised. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Quick comment here. Eve was the first legalist. God never said you couldn't touch it. But she begins to add commandments onto what God said. There's already a problem. God just said, don't eat it. She said, we can't eat it. We can't even touch it. It's a problem. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam was not guarding the garden. He was not guarding his wife. He was not being a good husband. He was allowing the serpent into the garden to blaspheme God and lie to his wife. He should have bruised, cursed the serpent, and cast it out. But instead, he was listening. Not correcting the blasphemies of Satan and working through the serpent. Not protecting his wife. Not protecting his soon-to-be children. But he listened. And he allowed his wife to take the, 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 the fruit and eat and he himself ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking, like he does in his temple, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Instead of running to him as their ultimate joy, their, their sunum bonum, their everything, their glorious all in all, they're hiding from him. Everything has been turned upside down. And the Lord God called Adam and he said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle. More than every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. But yet, hope, Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a gospel promise in Genesis of a coming seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Satan has deceived the human race. They have just fallen. And what does God do? He says, I'm going to send a seed of the woman and it's going to crush the head of the serpent. Yes, the seed of the woman is going to have a bruised heel and dealing with you, Satan, but you will be crushed by the seed of the woman. This is the gospel promise in Genesis for the people of God who had just fallen astray. So to the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. 
you shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Everything is falling apart. Deconstruction. This body that God had given Adam, he was never supposed to be departed from it. Body and soul were never supposed to be ripped apart like they're being talked about right here. The body returning to the earth. And we see in Ecclesiastes 12.7 more, more commentary on this. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. That's what happens now. The embodied souls, the physical spiritual beings as image bearers of God, we were made that way and always were supposed to be that way. We were never supposed to have these two things ripped apart. But the curse that has come in has caused this. Yet Adam called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. So Adam had a helpmate. He still had his wife. There's still hope. The seed of the woman is coming through childbirth. And one other bit of hope here. Before they're cast out of the garden, God does one more thing that's very important that's looked over by many people. Genesis 3.21 Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now what's going on there is something very, very important. What we see happening is that God essentially sacrifices an animal. Where are these skins of animal coming from? There's no death yet. God must have sacrificed an animal right there and clothed them in the skin of this sacrifice. And that is to foreshadow what he's going to do to save his people through sacrifice. Not only does he promise the seed of the woman that's coming, he then begins sacrifice right there in the garden and clothes Adam and Eve in that sacrifice. We see here that he, they're being clothed in the image of sacrifice. Something that is to point forward to what all of us in Christ experience. That we're clothed in his image. We are dead with him. We're buried with him. We're raised with him. God is teaching these things in rudimentary ways to Adam and Eve, even in the garden right before they're cast out. There is hope. God is going to save his people through seed of the woman and through sacrifice. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man was become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden. He's exiling Adam and Eve out of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, the entrance, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Man is exiled and thrown into a cursed world, but they have the gospel hope with them. The eschatology of the beginning was derailed. The plan that God had for his creation was completely unended, but he's going to bring it back into a more glorious way, as we will see in the coming weeks. One point we cannot miss this evening. Brother Timothy Brindle puts it this way. Even though one of the aspects of God's curse upon humanity is the suffering of pain through childbirth, and especially the curse of death, the promised offspring, the seed of the woman, will actually overcome the serpent through his suffering death. And this is the hope that all of us who are Christians here have, that we have come to Christ Jesus, who suffered for us in his place. And for everyone here this evening who have not trusted him, we have, we have bad news. If you've not trusted in Christ, who's the promised seed of the woman, who saves us through sacrificing himself, there is no hope outside of him. If you are not in Adam, you are in, if you're not in Christ, you're in Adam. And if you're in Adam, this is what your state is right now. To every man, woman, and child in this room, you are a descendant of Adam and Eve. You have broken the everlasting covenant in your representative head, Adam. You are born in sin and under a curse. You are not imaging God correctly. You are fallen and you are guilty of a broken covenant. And you are excluded from God's presence and from his temple. You, lived in a cur you live in a cursed world on your way to death and eventually judgment and hell. Your only hope was the hope of Adam and Eve, which is the promised seed of the woman, the Messiah, who is Jesus. 
again to every man, woman, and child in this room this evening. If you are not in Christ, you are in Adam. And therefore, under God's wrath, and sealed off from his presence, and the tree of life, and you're under the dominion of the serpent, and you will soon die. My earnest desire for you this evening, those who are not in Christ this evening, those who have not closed with Christ, who have not come to him, who have not experienced this new birth and union with him, is for you to experience that. The command and the call of the gospel is to repent. Repent of being in Adam. Repent of the broken covenant of works. Repent of this sin. Repent of all of these things that you yourself are guilty of as well. And come to Christ. Believe in him. And he will give you his righteousness that you could not earn. He will cleanse you with his blood. He will undo the covenant of works and the curse that's put upon you. It's only through him, the seed of the woman. No other person can save you. You cannot earn your way back into Eden. You cannot eat of the tree of life. God has sealed you off from that. You have to go through a flaming sword to do that. And you have to undo the curse. And you cannot do that. But Jesus Christ went through that flaming sword, entered into God's presence, took the tree of life, ate, and confers it upon his people. Jesus is the hero who slayed the serpent, won the girl, and now is the hero. He has saved his people, the church. You must come to him. If you try to do it on your own, you will fail. You already have failed. There is nothing else outside of Christ. This is why Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me because he's the hero. He's the glorious son of man that came to do the things that Adam did not do. He perfectly obeyed his father and then he paid the guilt price for what the people did in disobeying him. So Christ not only saves us by his death, he saves us by his life. We have to be clothed in the image of sacrifice. We have to be clothed in the image of the Son of God. Otherwise, you're in Adam and you're doomed. There's nothing you can do if you're in Adam. There's nothing you can do to make up for all this disaster we just saw in Genesis 1 through 3. And if you're thinking about eschatology in light of anything outside of these things, you're thinking of it wrongly. You have to see Jesus Christ as the point of eschatology, that he is undoing what we failed to do, and he's bringing creation to a place that's better than the beginning. That's the point of eschatology, what Christ is doing and the kingdom he's establishing. And to those of us who are Christians in this room this evening, I want to leave you with an exhortation before we close. If you've been saved by Christ... If you've had this marvelous work of redemption done in your soul, if you're born again and you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, God has opened paradise to you. He has come to dwell within you. He has beckoned you back into his temple and into his presence. He is no longer shunning you. He is no longer exiling you. He's calling you into his presence for fellowship. And on the Lord's day, as you gather with God's people, are we having expectant faith to meet him here? Do we care? Are we satisfied going week in, week out, not experiencing God's near presence, knowing that we have a privilege that so many for so long desired and looked after, that God would dwell with his people again? We have it here, even in this body. As believers, we are the temple of God and Christ is the cornerstone. God is establishing his new temple. He's already calling his people to himself. He's spreading image bearers throughout the whole world as we speak. And when we gather together as God's people on his day, he is there uniquely amongst us, walking amongst us, as Jesus is pictured in the Revelation, walking amongst the candlesticks, just as God walked amongst the people in the garden. But do we even realize that? Is that a tangible reality for us on the Lord's day? Or do we just go through the motions week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, and we're totally fine feeling nothing? We're totally fine not having a tangible experience of the living God, not having an expectant faith that we're going to meet him in worship, that he's going to manifest himself to us, that we can rejoice in him and be filled with the Spirit and thank him that we can be brought into his presence again. My brethren, you need to fight. We need to fight the distractions that make us don't even, not even think about that. We need to fight the things in our life that are causing us to miss that every Lord's Day. That we have the greatest privilege on earth. That we're being brought back into God's presence. That someone else went through that flaming sword for us. Someone else has won eternal life for us. And now God is pleased to dwell with us and to show himself to us if we look for him. If we expect it. 
If we seek him with all our hearts, he will reveal himself to us. We can't live without this. My brethren, look at what happened in the garden and rejoice every Lord's Day when you gather with God's people that I can be brought in the presence of God, this mount of assembly, and he is smiling upon us and his face, his countenance is lifted up upon us. Don't be content with missing that week in and week out. Pray earnestly that the Lord would sweetly bless our times of worship like we really should enjoy it. So in in conclusion here, thank you for your patience. The eschatology of the beginning has been messed up and has to be put back on track by another. That's going to be the theme going forward. How do the scriptures lay out we're going to get through this? How, how, How does Jesus bring us back to a place that's better than the beginning? How does God bring us to this place after everything gets derailed? Responsible image bearers of God who are body and soul are now guilty sinners, cursed with death and toil, and under the dominion of the serpent because of a broken covenant of works. And the garden mountain temple of God's special presence has been sealed off and the mission to spread it through being fruitful and multiplying has been derailed. But a promised seed of the woman is to come to undo the negative effects of the fall and complete what should have been accomplished by Adam and therefore will bring God's creation to a place that is better than the beginning, which is a new creation that in its totality has become God's special temple dwelling place, filling all of the cosmos and dominated by righteous image-bearing sons of God, confirmed in glory forever without sin. And sin, death, and Satan are subdued and destroyed forever, all because of the person and work of the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has passed through that flaming sword and has eaten from the tree of life to give it to his people. And when Christ comes to resurrect the dead, we will be endowed with the image of the heavenly man, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. I end with these words, the Apostle Paul. As that we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, the image of God being perfected here. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought past the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Brothers and sisters, Genesis has everything to do with eschatology. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this Lord's Day evening and this time to pray and to sing your praises. And Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to preach, Lord, and I pray that you would bring it home to every man, woman, and child here this evening. Lord, I pray that we would truly seek your face and know what privileges we have if we be in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would glorify your name, Lord, that the saints in this room would be encouraged and edified to see what treasures we have in Christ, and that sinners here that know you not would be convicted and converted unto you, Lord, that they would know what it's life like to taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, I pray that you would bless the rest of this evening, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.